Uh, take your Bibles out this morning, and as you do so, let me begin with a word of confession to my shame. Uh, Y'all know that uh, I'm probably one of the fastest and most aggressive drivers in, in all of Cabarrus County. And so as I look out across the front rows this morning and see all of these police officers, I'm, I'm getting a little different perspective on looking them. I, I'm used to turn this way and seeing blue lights in my rear view mirror. So. If they have a blue light they could flash, it might make me feel a little bit more at home this morning as I preach. Uh, the fastest they would let me go at the speedway was 145 miles an hour. And to be honest with you, I felt like I could have eaten a, a sandwich and drunk a cup of coffee and combed my hair and didn't, honestly didn't feel all that fast. But anyway, so I'm kind of getting a new perspective on these guys, you know, looking at them from this direction. If you see me keep reaching for my wallet, it's, it's just habit. So I'm asking your driver's license. <laughs> Romans 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Would you turn there with me, please? And stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading Romans chapter 13. Uh, beginning in verse 1 and reading down through verse 7, and then turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. Paul says there, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then from 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Father, we thank You for the way that Your Word addresses such practical situations in our lives. And this morning, Help us to see what Your Word has to say about being kingdom citizens. Again, Lord, we thank You for these men and women who are our guests this morning. 
We pray your watch, care, and blessings on them in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you. You may be seated. Dr. Michael Blakely tells the story of an incident that happened while he was in medical school out in California back in the 80s. He stopped in at Malibu, California into a restaurant there and as he entered into the restaurant there, is, there was a political activist who came in right after him. And the activist immediately began telling everybody around who would listen what a mess the United States was in. He ridiculed the government. He ridiculed the educational system. He ridiculed the economic and industrial system. And he ridiculed the financial system. In fact, as everybody listened to this activist, they could tell there wasn't much about the United States that this gentleman uh, particularly liked. And surprisingly, he started gaining quite an audience. Dr. Blakely said it seemed like he had everybody on his side but me and another old man. The activist shied away from me seeing my Pepperdine hat, my Ronald Reagan t-shirt, and a copy of the Wall Street Journal. And so he left me alone and he went after the old man. Now as he approached, the old man continued slurping his suit and he turned his back. The activist sat down at the old man's table and he offered, he said, Mr. if you can tell me just one thing that the United States has ever done for you, then I'll leave you alone. Finally, the old man looked up. His red face indicated years of working out of the sun. With a heavy Russian accent, he replied, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the activist realizing he was defeated, he couldn't argue with what the old man had to say. Because you see, here was an old man who had endured life under communism and that oppression, and now he was enjoying the freedoms of the United States of America. Folks, we can be so grateful today that we do indeed have the liberties that we have. The nation's not perfect. We know right now that there seems to be a moral and a spiritual crisis in America, but it is a republic with a democratic form of government where we can work for change. And it's still the greatest country on the face of the earth. Amen. Now this morning I want us to look at the Word of God to see what the Word of God has to say about human government and those who work in government to protect us. How are we to respond to these men and women who are our guests this morning? What is our attitude towards them to be? And how are they to do their work? The passages we look at today have, have volumes to say about all that. 
They don't have a blank check for what whatever they want to do, and we don't have a blank check for whatever we want to do. Both leaders and citizens alike have a stewardship that is given to God, given to them by God, and we're going to be held accountable for how we live out our stewardship. Now, as we look at Romans 13, first of all this morning, I think it's important that we understand the overall flow of the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans deals with true righteousness. I think we could divide the book up into four major sections. First of all is the section on how a person is made righteous before a holy God. Because the scripture says in and of ourselves we're not righteous. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And so Paul begins in Romans 1-3 to talking about how you and I can be made righteous before a holy God. And we know how that is. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. As we read in 1 Timothy 2 this morning, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so the most important question I could pose for any of us in here today is have you been reconciled to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's how we have righteousness before God. We're not clothed in our righteousness, but we're clothed in His righteousness. Now the second major section of Romans, beginning in chapter uh, 5 and going through chapter 8, is, uh, is discussing the benefits of those who have been made righteous before God. What are the benefits? Well, we have peace with God through Christ, and not only peace with God, but we have access into God's presence. We have a steadfast hope even in the midst of our trials. We, we have help to live the godly life through the power of the Holy Spirit and we're in a state of no condemnation. Then Paul turns to address Israel. What about Israel? Chapters 9-11. through 11. Because it would seem for now that Israel has rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so has God written off Israel? And he points out in Romans 9, 10, and 11, no, God's not done with Israel yet. He's going to do something to stir them to jealousy and bring a complete number of them to faith in Christ. And then finally in chapters 12 and following, we see the subject matter of being righteous in our everyday life. Now as a part of that expressed righteousness, Paul turns to show how righteousness is expressed in the world. How are you and I to live in the world? Jesus said you're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So how are we to live that out? You see, folks, for too long, Christians have left their Christian faith at the door of the church. But the Bible points out that we're to carry our faith out into the marketplace and we're to live out our faith. So in summary, how can we live as kingdom citizens? And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Let's look at how we live as kingdom citizens in relationship to human government and human authorities. 
And again, what we're going to see is that they have a stewardship and you and I have a stewardship. First of all, I want you to see with me this morning that we are to live with honor concerning human government. And Paul talks there about the fact that we are to submit to authorities. We're going to spend just about all of our time there this morning. What is it that Paul points out there? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. I want you to underscore that. No authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul points out that government is established by God. Government is not some man-made idea that you and I came up with or our ancestors came up with many, many years ago. Government is God's idea for the good of society. Could you imagine a society where there were no governing powers and no laws over us? There would be corruption and chaos. We would have to lock ourselves behind uh, iron bars and, and steel doors and protect ourselves because everything would be in chaos. And so what's God done? He's established human authorities. That there can be some sense of order and peace on the face of the earth. And so government is established by God, not man. Remember Jesus' words to Pilate in John chapter 19? Pilate asked, Pilate asked Jesus, he said, are, are you going to remain silent to me? Are you not going to answer my question? Pilate said, do you not realize that I have authority over you? either to deliver you to life or to hand you over to be crucified. And you remember what Jesus' response to Pilate was? He said, you would have no authority over me except it had been granted to you from above, from God. And so government is established by God. Now this doesn't mean He's responsible for the sins of some of our leaders at times. Uh, no more than he's responsible for our the church is his idea. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Does that mean he's responsible for all the sins of church leaders? No. But he still put church and government in place. He's established three organizations, the family, church, and government. That's God's design. John Phillips writes, Governments may be weak or strong, just or oppressive, benevolent or cruel, wise or foolish, but in each case, God has His way and moves His own plans forward. God's sovereign. John Phillips goes on to say, democracies and dictatorships alike are under His control. God balances one nation off against another. He uses one nation to chastise another. Nations come and go. Kingdoms rise and fall. Empires wax and wane. But behind them all is God overruling in the affairs of men. Aren't you glad that's the kind of God we serve? And He's put certain structures in place for our good and for our benefit. 
And leaders everywhere and citizens everywhere need to realize this and we need to realize that our stewardship is not just to one another, it is, but ultimately our stewardship is to God himself. You may not always agree with whatever happens at a given time or whoever might be in charge making decisions at a given time. But folks, we need to respect our leaders in office. 1 Timothy 2 adds that in addition to submitting to governmental authorities, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for our leaders. Paul suggests two things that we need to be praying for. First of all, we're to pray that their decisions ultimately bring peace. And then secondly, we need to pray that their decisions would ultimately open doors for the spread of the gospel. You see, it's not that we pray for peace just for the sake of our own comfort, but we're to pray for peace so that open avenues may be, uh, may be continued for the spread of the gospel. And so it's not a selfish peace that we pray for, but a kingdom-oriented peace that we pray for. Now next we see there in Romans 13 that failure to submit to governing authorities will bring judgment. He says beginning there in verse 2, Therefore whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. There may be immediate judgment by the powers that be on this earth but for certain there's the ultimate judgment that God's going to bring to our lives if we resist what He's put in place. Paul goes on to say here, there is no fear from the authorities if you and I simply do what is right. I bet these men and women wish there were more citizens in society who would simply do what is right. It'd make their jobs a whole lot easier. And there's no fear of them if we do what is right. Now what about unjust governments that praise evil and condemn good? Because that's what some people around the world face. Probably as John Calvin suggested, what Paul is addressing is the way it's supposed to be by and large. Even unchristian governments by and large aim for the public peace. Obviously, the Old and the New Testament show that when human government oversteps its appointed God-given boundaries and asks us to disobey God, then we're not to submit. Dr. John R.W. Stott writes, whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Daniel wouldn't obey the king's edict to pray only to him. Daniel kept going upstairs to his room, opening his windows towards Jerusalem and praying. And God blessed him for doing so. The book of Acts records a clear case where civil disobedience was the right thing to do. The authorities told Peter and John that they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And you remember their response? They said, we must obey God rather than men. F.F. Bruce makes a wonderful point. If we have been good citizens though, 
And we have submitted to Caesar and obeyed Caesar's laws as long as Caesar stays within his God-ordained boundaries, then perhaps our objections to Caesar will be much more effective when he oversteps his limits. But again, Paul's just looking at the general principle here, the way governments in general work. And he's reminding us that it is established by God, it is created by God for your good and for my good, and so we are to submit to it and we are to respect it. Folks, where the system is wrong around the world, a lot of times people don't have the liberties you and I do. It's interesting what happened during the heart of one German theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. During World War I, he was a pacifist. But by World War II, when he witnessed what Hitler was doing in Germany, he saw what happens when good government gives way to bad government, and so he changed his convictions altogether. He argued that it's impossible to avoid sin by refusing to take action. He said that if Christians fail to take action against injustice, the Christians themselves have become involved in sin. That's why we need Christians involved in politics and in service. Folks, I'm grateful for many of these men and women here this morning for their Christian faith. Amen? Amen. We need Christians involved at every level of society. Why would we not? Why would we want to abdicate all roles in the public eye over to unbelievers? And so we ought to have Christians spread all throughout society in all different walks of life, including government, so that we can be that salt of the earth and light of the world. And again, we do all this because we respect the place of government. Folks, let me talk a minute also about submission to first responders. What I've said about submission sounds more aimed towards elected officials, but I'm also talking about those who are firefighters and police officers. I'm told that it's crazy what they face sometimes when they show up on a scene the way people want to fight them or pull guns out or knives out or shoot them or try to cause them harm. That's crazy. That's nuts. If you ever have a disagreement with them, be in cooperation on the scene. You can take it up peacefully with them later on in productive ways. I wish people would do that in society today rather than all this nonsense that we read about in the news that's going on. These men and women have a job to do at the scene and we ought to help them and not oppose them. Be respectful. They want to go home that night too. I want to tell you a true story, and it's, it's an extreme story, but it, it shows something about the dangers these men and women face. My uncle, Bill Hines, is a retired state trooper here in North Carolina. 
and he lives over in the Forest City and Rutherfordton area. And I called him yesterday just to make sure I had all the details of this story right because I remember him telling me about this a number of years ago. Back in 1984, the state of North Carolina executed a man by the name of James Hutchins. You may remember his story. It was the first execution in the state of North Carolina after North Carolina had reinstated the death penalty. And my uncle was one of the state troopers, one of the main ones there facing off with James Hutchins. My, my cousins were classmates of James' daughter, Charlotte. And Charlotte, it was graduation time in 1979, and Charlotte had spiked the punch with vodka. And James, her dad, known as a very violent man, came home and his daughter was about to host this big graduation party at the end of May in 1979. He found out what Charlotte had done and he went absolutely berserk and jumped on her. She ran next door and the neighbors called the police. A sheriff's deputy got there on the scene and even before he could get out of the driver's door, James Hutchins took his high-powered rifle and he shot and killed that deputy sheriff. Another deputy sheriff arrived at the scene not knowing what had just happened. When he pulled up and he saw his buddy laying there dead in the driveway, he threw his car in reverse to get out of there and seek cover as he did. James Hutchins killed him. And then James Hutchins jumped in his car and started fleeing. A state trooper got in pursuit of him and they went around a sharp curve and not knowing that uh, Hutchins had gotten out of his car and was waiting on the state trooper, when the, guy, when the state trooper came around the sharp curve, he shot through the windshield and he killed that state trooper also. It was the single deadliest day for law enforcement in the state of North Carolina. Well, time it was said and done, about 200 officers from all different types of squads had got involved. And they were checking. My uncle had just got home off duty. He heard everything, got his, got his uniform back on and went out. And, and it was him and another state trooper and a couple of deputy sheriffs. They were in the woods because uh, Hutchins had gone out into a remote part of the woods and, and was hiding. And he had a 30-06 and he had a double-barrel uh, shotgun. And, and Bill said on one side he was shooting slugs, another side just regular uh, shotgun shot. But anyway, uh, my uncle and another state trooper and two deputy sheriffs were with a, a guy leading his bloodhounds, uh, his dogs. They'd gotten that uh, dog team out of South Carolina and they came up on Hutchins in the woods and it was pitch black so he couldn't tell who it was. And he wanted to know who they were. They were trying to trick him at first. And for a second he bought into it. They said they were just coon hunters out hunting that night. But then he got on to them and he started firing at them. 
And he got the position on them because he was up high, firing down on them. My uncle said about all they had to hide behind was little pine trees. My uncle's a real big man. And he said, when you're hiding behind a little pine tree and a high-powered 30-06 is taking big chunks out of the tree right at your head, it's a pretty scary thing. Well, finally that night, they were able to get him surrounded pretty much. And at daybreak, he could hear on their police radios how they were about to turn teams of attack dogs loose to go in and get him. And he finally, at daybreak, surrendered. And in 1984, at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, they put him to death by lethal injection. Now, folks, that's an extreme example, but it shows what these guys face every time. Every time they walk out the door, they have no idea what they're going to be faced with that day or that day. No idea. And that's why Paul says here we need to submit to him. He says there, there's fear for the rebel. He says there in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, he says, For he is God's servant. For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now there's three ways to look at that phrase, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. First, government deals with lawbreakers in many ways. The sword is simply a symbol for any kind of punishment. That's probably the best interpretation. Secondly, the sword may be a symbol for military action. If people rebel and cause an uprising, the government has the military at its disposal. And third, the sword is a symbol for the death penalty. The Bible points out as individuals, we are not to kill, but the Bible says that as the government in carrying out sentences that meet the crime, the government authorities do have the right to take life. Some people want to say today the death penalty is murder. No, it's not. I could preach a whole sermon on the legitimacy of the death penalty where the crime fits. These people outside of prisons when somebody's being executed and they hold up uh, the sixth commandment out of Exodus 20 saying, Thou shalt not kill. They're 100% wrong in their Bible hermeneutics. God has given human government the right to even exercise the death penalty where that's appropriate. In fact, in the very next chapter, Exodus 21, after he's just said in chapter 20, Thou shalt not kill, referring to individuals, we're not kill one another. In the very next chapter, he talks about how the people collectively have the right to take life where it's a fitting crime. But Paul is saying here, we not only submit to the government because it's, it's God's servant and God's put it in place, but we are to respect because of fear and there's no fear if we do right. But if we do wrong, there's punishment. And then he goes on here in verses 6 and 7 to say, for because of this you also pay taxes 
for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so we need to be honest in our taxes. Officials deserve pay for their public service. If government is ordained by God and they work in government, then whether they realize it or not, they're servants of God. And so they deserve to be paid by the public because they serve the public. Now, Scott Padgett, don't go and raise our taxes. <laughs> But we need to be good citizens and even how we pay our taxes so that they can be supported. Remember what Jesus said on one occasion when they came to him, they had a, uh, well, they came to him first of all and said, Jesus, should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, give me a coin. And they handed him a coin and he said, whose image is on it? And it was Caesar's image. And he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Caesar's image was on the coin, so he said, pay to Caesar what you owe Caesar. But there's an application a lot of people miss in that story. Whose stamp is upon us? If Caesar's stamp is upon the coin, and so we give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, whose stamp is upon us? God's. Because we're created in the image of God. So give to Caesar, give to the governing authorities what's due to them, and give to God what's due to Him. And what you're to give to God is your heart and your life. You belong to God. Folks, these guys and these ladies have tough work. Very tough work. And I'm glad I'm speaking to a congregation this morning that respects the work that they do. We're to honor them. We're to respect the work that they do. And we're to pray for them. You see, they're servants of God as they serve us and stewards. And we're stewards also as we're servants. In Mark chapter 9, they were going to Capernaum and Jesus was up ahead of His disciples. And the disciples were having a discussion about who was the greatest among them. And when they got in the house, Jesus said, what were you discussing in the way? And they were silent. William Barclay calls it the silence of shame. They knew they'd been caught. And Jesus taught them a lesson. You remember what that lesson was? He said, if you want to be great, be the least of all and the servant of all. Servants. These men and women are servants and you and I are servants. They're ministers. Folks, we think of our church leaders being ministers. These men and women are ministers in the sense that God has put them in the roles that they're in. And we're to respect them. And we're to honor them. And we're to pray for them. And we're to be good citizens, law-abiding citizens 
who do things honestly and even pay our taxes honestly. Because God has put this structure in place for your good and for my good. And so again, to these men and women this morning, I will say that we honor you. We honor you for your commitments and your service. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me a moment this morning. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want you to remember today that you're a kingdom citizen. Don't be like everybody else around you. Be like Jesus. We're living in a day and age where we see almost every week now in the media how our officials, even our police, are under attack. We need to pray for them. Pray for their families. And they need to know that we're on their side. We need to pray for our governmental leaders. Respect their authority. Pray for the military that keeps us safe. Folks, we need to pray that there would be peace in the land. And God... Let it start with me. That needs to be our prayer. Speaking of peace, I want to ask you this morning, do you have peace with God? That's the greatest peace of all. Has there been that time in your life that you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus? And He saved your soul. You were born again. You were made a new creation in Christ. Do you have that peace? If you don't, let me invite you this morning to say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I've sinned and come short of your glory just like everybody else. And I want to be reconciled with you. I want to be saved. Lord Jesus, would you come into my life and from this moment forward be my Lord and my Savior and live your life through me. Help me to be the man or the woman that you would have me to be. It's just a simple prayer. But it's a meaningful prayer. Acknowledge your need and who Christ is that He died on the cross for your sins and on the third day was raised to life again. And surrender your life to Him. I want to encourage you, whether here this morning or back in your own place of worship, if you're a member somewhere else, let people know that you've turned your life over to Christ if you've done that today for the first time. And follow the Lord in believer's baptism. 
To those who have already made that decision at some point in the past, let me remind you as we get back to the thinking about the topic of today, in your devotion time each day, pray for these people who serve among us. That they will be safe and that God will give them wisdom. Father, again, we thank You for this day where we can honor these men and women. The mayor, the police chief, the fire chief and personnel, all the men and women uh, in uniform, police and fire, the first responders, the dispatchers. Lord, everyone among us who serves. We do pray again for Your protection on their lives. Continue to be with them in their work. And Lord, I pray that every day in society that they would see citizens around them supporting them and praying for them and helping them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.